When I first uh, got involved in this topic, uh, it was because um, uh, of a topic that has been raised in the previous section at the end. Uh, it was because we had a sonic university and um, grants were being phased out and loans phased in, and the question was what was to be done. And the more I thought about it, the more I realised that one of the most extraordinary things was that although I had been going and talking to various priests over my lifetime about uh, my soul and my prayers, um, somehow money had never come up. And then I more alarmingly thought, actually one or two people used to come and talk to me about that and I'd never raised the question and it seemed kind of odd. So Angus and I thought we would, um, we would start this session, um, which is going to include, as the second part, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk a bit about some theological questions around money, and, and then uh, Angus will go on from there in the third part. But we thought we'd begin um, with a, a little role play. Um, uh, he may not look like it, but he is a member of my congregation. <laughs> and um, uh, I certainly don't look like a person who's ever been a vicar of a congregation because I never have God being protective of parishes on God. <laughs> um, so he's going to... I've preached a sermon about stewardship uh, is the scenario behind the role play. And... Uh, suddenly found that Angus was uh, asking for an appointment to see me and uh, I don't really know what he's going to say but um, perhaps uh, he, he'll say something and I'll have to reply. Good morning Vicar. Hi. Very good to be here. Yes. Thank you very much for your sermon on Sunday which was very thought provoking. I've been uh, in this congregation for 20 years now uh, and we've had a number of very good sermons from our vicars on stewardship. Um, and I suppose what struck me really, I mean, I, I work in banking, what struck me is um, they all begin by saying, with, with respect, Father, that, um, <laughs> that there's much, that the Bible has a lot of teaching about money and possessions, and this is a broad issue, and it's not just about what we give to the church, which I think is true. That really got me thinking about my own work and my investments. But the only concrete thing I've ever been left with as a thing to do is to give more to the church. So I thought, <laughs> I thought it might be useful to, um, just to tease out a little bit more about what else the, these biblical passages and principles have to say to, to my life beyond, you know, I've upped my standing order, I'm now tithing, but, but what else does it mean for me as a Christian? Well, when you got into banking in the first place, um, what led you there? Did you think? Did you think God wanted you to do that? Oh, um, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I. I suppose I'd. You know, I was part of a Christian fellowship um, at university. Um, I'd been brought up from. You know, to to work hard and provide for for my family. So yes, it struck me as as a, as a good way. And I, th I thought. I mean, and this, I suppose, is one of the the struggles, really. Um, I, I thought it was important, and I had a, a sermon that affected me a lot, saying it's important for Christians to be in all kinds of places of influence as salt and light. But I, I do find now, I mean, I, 
the, the teaching seems very general. Yes. Would you like it to be more particular? Would you like it better if I said, you really shouldn't be doing this at all. You're making profit out of a substance that's really just a means of exchange. Would you like me to say, you're just in the wrong business and you shouldn't be there? Is that what you're hoping for? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not, I suppose I'm not sure we should come to, to Vickers for things that we like. But if, I mean, in all seriousness... <laughs> I mean, is, is that, I mean, that, that in a way is, I suppose, is the, is the question for me, is, is, there a, um, is there a way for me uh, to live this out beyond what I give in church? And what, what, does, it, what does it mean for my, what, what does it mean for the 90% of my money that's left? I mean, but also, I suppose, if we're, if we're going to have things that we don't like, I mean, what might it mean for the parish accounts? Well... I think one of the questions I, I, I do want to ask you is, have you, have you thought about what and how do you react to all the anger there is around about your industry at the moment? I mean, you're not a popular trade, are you? You're nearly as unpopular as the clergy, I think. But, I mean, you are, you're, not, you're yeah. not popular. Now, is that because people think... You're not doing anything very useful, actually. All you're doing is lining your pockets. Yes, I suppose, if I'm really honest, I suppose I, I find that as, um, as perplexing as some of these sermons, really, in that, um, <laughs> in that when it looked like the banks were going to, you know, to collapse, the government, you know, came in and bailed us out because we were needed. So I suppose that is part of my question, is... There's a question for me, how do I get from here to being a better mm-hmm. Christian in my, in, if, if I stay in banking? But then there is a, there's a question for, for society, I suppose. You know, what, what, um, how do we get from here to something better? I mean, we can't just... I suppose if I, I feel, I suppose, if I, if I left banking, um, we'd still need to have banks. So, so how, do, how do we have good... Banking and what part can I play in that? I suppose. When you come home at night after a day's work, um, what makes you think this was a good day's work, as against on other days when you don't think it's been a good day's work? What what makes what makes a good day's work for you? It's mm, a very good question. I suppose sometimes that's about uh, how I'm doing at the bank. How my bosses, you want, how's my evaluation likely to go? And sometimes that is about, I mean, it's lovely when you're, um, you know, when you're arranging a loan for a really good company. That, I mean, sometimes it's heartbreaking when you can't because the sums just don't add up. But, you know, if I've, if I've enabled a company to expand and take on new staff in a plant, that's a very satisfying thing. Um, and as I say, in a way, that's the puzzle I'm left with, is that surely we need something. I mean, there's got... We're going to have to have some way that people save money and it's secure, and other people borrow money and build new factories. And but just to say that how we do it now is—I mean, how do I do this better? I, f- I always feel that um, that there's quite general criticisms. But what do we do tomorrow that that makes any of this better? That's my. But perhaps we should. Perhaps we could. Leave that question in the air, yeah. and I'll talk, and then you'll talk, yeah. and we'll see where we get. Um, a really difficult conversation. 
Uh, I don't know how you felt about that, and I, I think I want to ask. Um, I think I want to ask Angus to say just a little bit about what did it feel like to come and and, and say all that, and then to get these whatever you thought platitudinous <laughs> or whatever um, replies. No, I mean I. I... I thought it in, in all as, as I was doing it, I thought it really would have been good to have a um, a real banker here because there's a limit to how much I can inhabit that, but it felt to me like the the question is really very real uh, and i um, and I suppose I liked the possibility that the answer might be quite radical mm-hmm. um, but but then thinking well how how is that then going to be lived out yeah. is but yeah. it felt like we need a lot longer in yeah that's yeah yeah we, we certainly we certainly yeah. would um, because I think one of the key things that this this banker said was, well, we do need banks, don't we? We, we can't manage without them, so uh, how can they be better? And I think that I, I, I want to um, uh, affirm my support for a lot of the initiatives that were being described in the previous session, because they are things that will help to make, for some people, uh, things better. Um, but I have another concern. And my other concern is that... Um, that as well as needing to make things better, we need to understand the things we have and the fundamental questions that are to be raised about them. Because we don't just live in a world where some banks might fail or where we need more regulation, although all those things are going on, as we all know. We live in a world where some very, very particular things have been going on and they, are a, and they are a trend over uh, the last three decades, probably. And let's just try and say what some of those are. Um, I mean, uh, you're, you're located in East London. In East London, uh, the Olympics took place. And the Olympics were, took place with a significant contribution from, from the Lottery Fund. Now, the Lottery Fund is is provided by, uh, in the main, the purchases of poor people. Uh, And that's not because poor people don't understand money. It's because they do. Uh, Poor people buy lottery tickets because if you have, can see no chance of a way out of poverty, then something that offers one in 50 million against as a chance is still a better chance than no chance. And um, not only is this the case about lottery funding for the Olympics, which means that our churches get restored or our Olympic Games get run with the money from people who can't afford it, really, but it isn't only that. It's also the fact that running such a vast gambling industry obscures the fact that in any debate about whether we should have casinos, we need to remember that we actually live in one. And the events of 2008 were precisely uh, when the chips were called in and they weren't there. And that needs to provoke us into some serious reflection about what's happened to money. Now, um, and, 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 and that's what I've been writing about, and, and, but, I, but it's what I want to say a little bit about now. 
What has happened to money? Now, since the Depression, when we ceased to be on the gold standard, banks have been allowed to lend multiples of what was deposited with them. And the interesting thing is that banks can do that and therefore multiply by a very large amount the money that they can lend out. And they become more and more ingenious in their schemes to do that in order to make a profit. And about nine-tenths of the money you and I use all the time is actually produced by banks as debt. And one of the things that hit me was, having, having written about debt and, and that having come out in 1997, what hit me right at the end of it was, well, the, the trouble about that book is that money is now nearly entirely debt. And so if, when we're having our actions about more affordable and accessible credit, when we're trying to set up credit unions, and I'm in favour of all of that, we need to remember that actually we all live on debt. And the only thing people can think of to get our economy moving, to use the uh, expression, uh, is that we should once again start getting into debt to a greater extent than we have. And um, uh, it, it is one of my absolutely favourite parables because it seems to me to show such a profound understanding of the psychology uh, that we all have about money. It, it is the parable of the, of, the, of the two debts. Because it seems to me that if Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling and co. had actually read that parable and reflected on it, they would never have had the naive expectation that bankers who'd been bailed out would lend money to other people into the economy and get it moving again. They would never have done that because they would have realised if they'd read that parable that what happens to a person who's bailed out is a huge inner resolve never to get into that situation again. And so it's totally understandable that... Um, that a person who'd been bailed out in that way wouldn't lend money, uh, or rather wouldn't be kind about the debt that he was owed by somebody else. And that seems to me to be a fundamental uh, piece of the Christian agenda, um, that we are the recipients of generosity, but not generosity with a sting in its tail. We are... We are, the we are the beneficiaries of generosity who are being invited to have our hearts warmed to live in an economy of generosity and gift. And that's really one of the reasons why, when it comes to church finance, and, and that was one of the questions that was being raised, I think it is really important that we, that we got away, and I think we have started to get away from the notion that please can we have 5% of your money for the church? And talk about, please can we have your maximum generosity for those in need? And some of it, yes, some of it may go to the church. So, so the tithe is for, is for the good of the world and the bringing nearer of the kingdom, not for the maintenance of the church. 
And the church has to take its chance alongside all the other things that it's really important for us to be supporting. Now I know that's dangerous stuff and I know it's frightening stuff and if you're clergy like me and you're dependent upon uh, the church for your income, it's extremely frightening stuff. But it just seems to me uh, where the Bible might lead us. And that the reason why that all that anti-usury material in, in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy is there is because of a profound understanding that it's the creditors who are in spiritual danger, not the debtors. That it's creditors who are the people who are likely to be mortgaging their souls. Now, if we take all of that seriously and then look at what has happened to money in a world where due to things like oil price rises, the amount of money in the system has multiplied through the fractional reserve rules that I, I mentioned, which mean that 10 times that amount of money gets put into the economy. And if we add to that um, technological advances, which mean that money circulates now not in taxi cabs full of banknotes, but at the touch of a button. If we take all that together, we can see just why it is that money has started to bulk so much in our lives. And if we'd had time, or you'd role-played a different kind of member of the congregation, it would have been to discuss the question, what does it actually feel like when I wake up in the morning about my money? Am I worried? Am I delighted? Am I guilty? Those are the questions that people really do need to ask. And uh, it's certainly my experience, and this echoes something, I think it was you, David, who said that this echoes something that I think is my experience, which is that since I got into talking about this topic, um, I've never found people other than terribly interested and very concerned. And, and I think there's an evangelistic opportunity here because our attitude to money and our attitude to God need to be put kind of next to each other and that begins to raise the question of what you think your life is actually for. So I'm quite conscious as I stand here that there must be some of you thinking, well, at least the last session was practical. Um, you know, we could actually see what to do about it. Um, and all I can say in my defense about that is what was said by one of my uh, theological teachers when people kept saying, we just don't get enough in this theological college that's practical. And he replied, well, when you're ordained, you know, you're going to have to preach. And, um, and if you're preaching, it's practical, it's a practical need to have an idea. And uh, so what I'm wanting to say is that the theology, the theological questions raised by what has happened to money are questions of the greatest depth and profundity about the gospel that we proclaim. And they need to be in the background of our minds when we are thinking about a stewardship campaign or when we're thinking about starting a credit union or when we're th whatever it is we're thinking about as a practical initiative. We need to have in the back of our mind what has happened to money. And, and I, I have come to the conclusion, um, and 
and I came to it with some difficulty and reluctance, that there is a very uncomfortable resemblance between the way money is behaving in our world in reducing it to chaos, in producing massive disparities and inequalities in rewards for similar things, in producing massive rewards for failure. All the things money is doing are incredibly similar to what the deities against whom the prophets campaigned were doing in the ancient world. And if that's the case, then those of us who are ministers of the gospel need to put these things next to each other. And what I'm really saying is that money seems to me to raise as sharply as anything the questions about the gospel and its claim on our lives. Um, I mean, I know everybody knows that, that sex raises those questions. I know that everybody th knows that the church thinks that. But what I'm really clear about is that looking at money and what's happened to it and what is happening with it and what it's doing to our lives and the fears that it's arousing and the greeds that it's arousing, all those, all those things are as profound an arena for understanding the challenge of the gospel as anything. And I think, therefore, and this is in a sense not what we've come here for today, but I think it's worth saying this, if we are all of us in varying ways conscious of living in a secularized society in which the, uh, the language of faith doesn't ring bells with people anymore, um, then one of the ways I think it can start to ring bells again is if we make some serious contrasts uh, between the way money is working and the kind of economy uh, that God would like us to live in. Uh, I'm going to stop and you can ask questions and then Angus will take us on to the next phase. But it's, it's, it's over to you if you... And, and do feel free, by the way, to raise questions about that little role play at the beginning if that's also what you want to do. just really wanted to begin by picking up on that last remark that... Um, I think it's absolutely crucial to the practical initiatives we've been discussing precisely that um, although our capacity to act in congregations might be incremental, it only makes sense if we've got this wider vision, if we've actually got an analysis um, of what is going on in the world uh, and a belief in what the ultimate reality for which the world was created and um, into which it will be drawn is. So I think, uh, in a sense, part of our work at CTC has been all about um, how you keep theology and practice together. We've just changed our name, and it's fascinating to see people's reaction to... Well, our old name was the Contextual Theology Centre, which was um, seemed calculated to make people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> Some of you may have heard me say this before, but... Uh, my first piece of correspondence I received as director of the new centre, rather appropriately it came from HMRC, was addressed to the director of the Conjectural Theology Centre. <laughs> but there's a really interesting kind of question as to the place of theology 
in our lives. And I think that's kind of come up in our, um, in our discussion and the question of who's doing it and which questions get heard. We've deliberately, although we've changed our name, to, to emphasise that we're not an academic organisation or a think tank. We actually grow out of churches in East London, the initial churches we work with, all involved in community organising in London citizens, uh, involved in a practice because of their faith, wanting to hold those two together, to reflect theologically uh, on what they were doing. And so we changed the name to the Centre for Theology and Community to emphasise to emphasize that. And it's been interesting in just thinking about the way that community organising holds together and certainly Christian engagement in it, that sense of a, a kind of the need for churches involved to have a, a theological analysis and sometimes a deeply uncomfortable one, but then to return to the question of, yes, what do we, what do, we do next in the middle of that? Um, I'm just thinking 10 years into the living wage campaign about the fact that um, the churches which have been at the heart of that campaign um, started off with campaigns, or I remember the first campaign I was involved in was around getting different signposting in a local hospital. Um, our Catholic neighbours were involved in a campaign called uh, We Don't Want a Miracle, We Just Want a Sign, which was uh, getting a, a, a sign to point, getting Newham Council uh, to provide a sign to point to the church. And I think, um, I think there's something really important here about not seeing these two as polar opposites. That um, the reason for those little campaigns, and the church I'm involved in now is involved in one which is about um, you know, changing the road surface around the church, it precisely through people having an experience um, of action in the public realm based on their faith making a difference that generates the capacity and the appetite for more action. And so I think this, we actually constantly need to hold together the sense of, well, what is it in our church's engagement or in my life as a Christian when I, we have these kind of what do I do next conversations to hold together those incremental questions with, with the need for the much bigger analysis because otherwise, if we don't have that, that, that kind of almost panoramic picture we've just been given, we accept a background as common sense. That's just obvious. It couldn't be any different, could it? That's how the world works. Um, without saying, well, actually, the world might need to work in a profoundly different way. So I suppose the aim um, of these, the, the, what I want to help us to do next, is just to think about that a little bit more in the context of our congregation and how theology is done there. My background's in the Church of Scotland and uh, it's not quite the one-hour sermons that David Barclay was talking about, but uh, fairly standard for a Church of Scotland parish where I grew up for the sermon to be half an hour. And the, the minister in one of the churches through their 10 years preaching half-hour sermons morning and evening and deciding it, decided it would be fascinating to know what people actually believed. So he went along and asked them um, and was quite shocked by the answers after however many hours in total that was of sermons. What, what did they actually believe? Where was their theology coming from? Think of Catholic colleagues I have. There's a wonderful body of Catholic social teaching. But I suspect most members of the congregation, their theology is probably not coming from papal encyclicals. It's probably coming from their experience week by week of the Mass. That powerful sense of 
God's self-offering of, of coming and receiving a grace that they have not earned. It might be coming from their experience um, of going to confession. It might be um, a small group studying the Bible during Lent. It might be saying the rosary. Evagrius of Ponticus, I'm sure a theologian you're all very aware of, um, apart from writing a great deal about um, a sort of taxonomy of temptation, uh, said one sentence which Father Ken Leach often quoted, that a true theologian is one who prays. And what I want us to think about is how people in our congregations are actually doing theology. They may not use the word, they might experience the same resistance that I've experienced um, in CTC having theology in the name. But actually, in our congregations, if people are thinking about who God is, where they experience God, what difference God makes to the choices in their lives, they are doing theology. So if we're going to think about how to relate some of what we've been discussing to their lives, I think there's something there about not simply thinking that's half our bursts of theology every week, even if that's a valuable thing to do. But where are they already doing theology? How do they do that? And how might some of what we've been discussing today and um, some of what we take away from this session um, be connected more deeply with the places where that's going on? I mean, I suppose in a way that's back to the experience in Primrose Hill of the money talk, just the transforming effect of actually starting by asking people questions from their own experience. So what I'd like us to do for about 10 minutes um, Claudia always sigh at this point, is uh, get into small groups and just think about where in your context the theology is being done. Because I suspect, certainly in my own experience, um, it, the answers have been different for different people and in different churches. Um, but where is it in your congregation, as you think around the people who've been committed to your care, where do you think they're doing their theology? And in what, they might not call it that, but what is it they do to discern God's will for them? And then we might think a bit more in the second half uh, of my bit about, well, if that's where they're doing theology, um, how does what we've been talking about today connect with that? But a brief reflection, though, on that discussion. Uh, and that really uh, is about the relationship between preaching and other things that can go on in a church's life. Um, and I just think that's, it. I suppose, um, how do we end up combining our, well, how, do, how does what goes on on a Sunday morning end up being something where there's a bit more back and forward? Um, and how does that get combined in different ways? And this is a struggle when people don't come out as much as they do, did to midweek groups, perhaps. But how do we get into conversation? Because it strikes me that preaching is almost unavoidably generic. I mean, there is something about it which cannot apply what you're saying to, whether it's 20 people or 1,000 people, down to the specifics. Um, quite as much as we need to. And what are the other opportunities in our church's life where already or we could um, be in conversations which are much more about, well, how do these values um, impact on, um, on our lives? 
What are the opportunities in our church's life beyond the sermon for helping people to do theology, for listening to the wisdom that they bring through the fact they are theologians, they are people who pray, um, they are sometimes wonderfully prophetic? Um, and what are the opportunities when we feel there's a diet of stuff and coming from places we wouldn't want it to be coming from? What are the opportunities to actually reflect with them on the things that challenge that, whether in scripture or in their lived experience um, of their neighbours. How can we broaden out theology in our understanding of it? Um, and I suspect part of the answer to that um, will go back to the question of just how much of our time do we get to have deep face-to-face -face conversations with people? Because I think in the end that is, um, again, when I was at Westcott, I was told that parish visiting was all out of fashion, we didn't need to do it anymore. But I do think the face-to-face -face intentional conversation which really teases out with someone what their lived values and experience are, how it is that they are doing theology. If I can just one final anecdote, we, and then... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the things in community organising we, we do is, uh, in one-to-one in -one meetings, is it's interesting in terms of trying to build up a picture of what someone cares about um, is talk a bit about um, there's a sort of to find out what someone cares about to think about the, um, the people that are central to their lives the institutions that are central some key decisions they've made in their lives how they spend their time how they spend their money and it's interesting that in the community organising training we don't, there isn't a sort of separate box for talking about someone's values because the reality is once you find out how someone spends their time and their money and what institutions matter to them and what drives them. You know what their values are. That, that, their values are written all over their life, just as our church's values are written all over, among other things, our parish accounts. So how do we do theology in a way that's in dialogue with the genuine values that we and others have, um, and not allow it to, to be this thing which sort of lives in a separate box, or where we're the only people who get to do any of it and we deliver it, from the front, but, but, but to what effect? So I, I suppose that's the kind of question, how do we make our theological reflection more relational? And what are the sources that we can draw on that are actually resonating with where people in our congregation are actually already doing it? But over to you. Um, yeah. Um, just a couple of areas of discomfort I'm left with, and um, I wanted to share them, and uh, not because not because they made well in case they tally with anybody else's first one is um, I'm a bit uncomfortable about prophetic and prophecy and the, the use of that language I mean Amos was not on the church commissioner's payroll and um, I think there has to be there has to be a, a rather frightening honesty that's called from us about what are the risks that I would actually personally be prepared to take with my money uh, and my income and my future. Um, and, and I mean, I think that I, I've been dragged through a lot of my childhood and, and my anxieties by having to think about this. And I, so I, I would want to substitute for the word prophecy something which I think is a little more attainable by all of us, which is wisdom. 
And I think wisdom, and after all there's a huge wisdom literature in the, in the scriptures, seems to me to be attractive in that it is so much more closely related to honesty. Honesty about oneself, honesty about what one would be prepared to accept or put up with or whatever. So that, that was my first discomfort, is about prophecy. And the second is the kind of Thornbury uh, question about what we've been saying about the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. Um, because uh, it was a URC moderator who said that his church was a church uh, of telegraph readers ministered to by Guardian readers. And um, <laughs> there is a... You know, I just think there's a kind of a professional, um, appropriate source of information that we think is normal. Um, and as somebody who has no time for the two newspapers that have been mentioned and has been the victim of things they've done, I still think we need to notice that they don't exist for no purpose and that they don't their existence has, has meaning. Just those two bits of you know, grit that I'm left with to go home with. So over lunch, the idea is that we might um, model, do a bit of work on one of the uh, one of the practices we've been discussing this morning for getting into conversation, reflecting on money, and David's going to say a bit about that, and then we'll have lunch. Yes, so we're going to slightly make you work for your lunch, but not too hard, don't worry. Um, we talked a bit earlier, I talked about um, the money talk and what that looks like. And essentially the money talk is very simple. It's three questions. And, and the questions are, the first question is, is about challenges or problems that people might be facing in terms of money and financial services. The second question is about what kind of practical changes would make a difference, a positive difference. And the third question is about what's the role of your church in being involved in that. Rather than kind of making you all do a role play um, and and do that, what we're going to do is lunch will be just through there, and so we'll kind of let you go and get lunch and kind of um, chat and mingle for about 15 minutes, and then while you're doing that, we're going to rearrange the chairs in here uh, into little groups, and so people will come come back and and take a place wherever you want to, and then I'm just going to suggest really. That, that you you kind of model your discussion around those three broad questions from your experience of today. So from everything you've heard, the first question will be, you know, what do you what do you think are the real issues, the challenges, the problems in your context? And then we'll think about well, what are the practical things that would make a difference to those to those things in your context. And then lastly, kind of what are you going to take away from today? What do you think is the role of your church in all of this?